That's all right for you. That's all right, no mama. Any way you do, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, now, mama. Any way you do. Well, my mama, she done told me. Papa told me too. The life you live in, son, now women be the death for you. That's all right. That's all right. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And I'm Leonard Bout. And on this episode, we're talking about Elvis Presley, the complex origins of stardom. <laughs> so, Elvis Presley, I mean... What a man. I don't think I've ever read so much about one person's life that is so complicated, but not just from a personal perspective. I mean, he had his ups and downs and all kinds of things went really right and really wrong for him. But also his whole life just embodied so many different issues. And we're talking race, we're talking gender, we're talking an entire legacy that was was both the, the consequence of really big social changes in the middle of 20th century America. But he wasn't just a product of all of those. He also helped these values change. And yeah, I mean, I, I got very excited at all of that. And I was wondering, what was it that drew you to talk about this in the first place? Well, it's a very odd chain of events, so bear with me. But basically, I was on a flight. And if I'm ever on a plane, I have this rule with movies where I either watch uh, a Marvel movie or a rom-com. And this time around, it just so happened to be Crazy Rich Asians. And there was this one scene where there was this cover of Can't Help Falling in Love With You. And it took me back to my nine, 10 year old self when I used to listen to Elvis quite regularly. And, uh, Then I remembered this one story that I heard, and I always thought it was this myth. It was about how Elvis was not allowed to be filmed from the waist down. And so I went back uh, home and I researched this. And lo and behold, it's not a myth. It's not an exaggeration. It actually happened. And on the Ed Sullivan show, Ed Sullivan only agreed to actually host Elvis on the show if the cameraman did not film him from the belt below, right? And this is just like one of those examples, if you keep reading, about how he changed the landscape of expression, music, culture, everything, right? And if you think about it, Elvis was the first real superstar in every sense of the word. And if you look at the trajectory of his life, right from the beginning, you know, the humble start to the massive rise and and uh, climb to fame, and then spiraling out of control and, and almost losing it all and becoming kind of washed up. It's, it's all seen in his, you know, 40 something years of life. 
So talking about Elvis's humble beginnings, firstly, they were extremely humble. I mean, his family was was really very, very poor. And the second thing that's very special, I guess, about his upbringing and how it sets himself up for the future is that Elvis grew up in, in a place called Chapello, and in that he was living in neighborhoods alongside black families. And if we're looking back at this period in America, this is an America that's deeply, deeply racist. And in and amidst all of that, Elvis was living in the Deep South, where all this racism was heightened and everywhere, particularly with segregation and all the forms that racism manifested there. And well, Elvis was growing up alongside black families, and it's undeniable that the culture that he experienced there and the people that were around him had a big influence in what he went on to become. But I think the the major thing, the major theme of Elvis's childhood was just poverty. I mean, he didn't even have shoes to go to school with. It was that bad. Yeah, and even though uh, when the family moved to Memphis uh, and it got a little bit better when they sort of upgraded from destitute to lower class whites um, living in state housing, it was called Lauderdale Courts actually. And they had a little time when things in Lauderdale courts were going well, but it all blew up in their face. Um, again, because Elvis's father just wasn't the best breadwinner that they could have had. And, and they were always struggling. And in the end, they actually ended up in like this worse accommodation than in Tupelo. And it was in this place called Darktown and um, uh, this black neighborhood that, again, in Memphis, Tennessee, if you're white, you don't venture there. And yet they were um, living there. And all of this, I think, really became part and parcel of who Elvis was growing up. And, and it just influenced him in so many ways. And talking about these big influences in Elvis's early life, the other big thing was the relationship he had with his father. I mean, clearly, as we've talked about, his father wasn't doing a very good job of keeping the family afloat. And when Elvis was was becoming an adult and, and started to move away from the family, people that were around him, his biographers even, really saw that what Elvis wanted to become was everything but his father. Um, and that really pushed him to want to be successful. He wanted to make it big and make it big in singing and... He had this incredible talent that was probably the result of him having grown up in these very diverse circumstances. But what was interesting is that people at the time probably didn't even begin to understand the kind of talent that he had and what people could do with it. Yeah, I mean, there was this one time that um, he was speaking to the secretary in um, Sun Records, the first recording studio that uh, he went to. And the secretary asked him, so what do you sing? Like, do you sing Hillbilly? And he said, yeah, I sing Hillbilly. And, and she said, uh, who do you sound like? And his response was, I don't sound like nobody. Like, he had this interesting mix because of his upbringing. And because of that, in the mid-50s, it, it was just huge. It was this meteoric rise. And Elvis was literally everywhere. It was impossible to escape his influence. And um, the thing was that his raving fans were young teenage girls to the point where like they were obsessed at concerts backstage. They would surround him and 
there are situations where they literally rip his clothes off. And there's this one picture of him sort of sitting on top of a um, toilet stall because he's trying to escape these uh, these teenage girls. And the thing was, the reason why they were raving so much was because he almost gave them a way to express themselves uh, physically, sensually, sexually during his concerts in a way that no one had been able to up until that point. And as you can imagine, adults and parents just just hated it, right? <laughs> and in terms of him giving girls a, a platform to be able to actually objectify a star, I mean, this was completely new. I guess it's part and parcel of what it means to be a star today, both as a as a male and a female star. But when we look at what it was to be a celebrity and a star at the beginning of the 20th century, things were really different. Initially, as the 19th century came to an end and the 20th century started, people were looking after character in stars. It was about being, uh, being very civil, proper, being very sincere. And as movie stars became a thing in the 1920s, this formed into the idea of glamour. And... The image of these stars were so important because they were they were meant to be people that were perfect. They had very little difficulties in their personal life. Their entire image was manicured and, and studios made a really big effort to make sure that things were kept that way. And then we have Elvis and he's, he's troubled. He has hurtful songs about love. He's messy. He's a sexual symbol that gets sought after from all these girls. And that's completely changing the landscape. And I guess we had people like James Dean that also were objects of, of this kind of trend. But, you know, James Dean had three movies and then died at the height of his popularity. And Elvis carried that through and Elvis became the focus of all these things. And that's just the, the kind of history of stardom in America now. Elvis became the symbol of a, of a new wave of that. But if we're looking at people who identified in Elvis, it's interesting that this was also the moment when teenagers as a thing became named. It was the first time post-war, post-Second World War, that youth and, and you know young people were seen as a group with their own identity. And people looked up to Elvis and people like James Dean to manifest that identity. And all of this came from the social effects of, of the Second World War. We had dads going off to, to war in Europe. We had mothers whose roles as women were being redefined now that they were entering the workforce to help the war effort at home. And all these kids were being left behind at home for themselves, being much more independent than they'd ever been. And these people grew up to be then the fans that adored Elvis, that became the young American rebels and became the rebels that kickstarted the campus revolutions in the 60s. Yeah, but of course, it doesn't mean, and I think it's really important to mention that it doesn't mean that his management and the people behind the scenes didn't try and change his his image, especially with you know the the critical mass, like the adults and 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 the parents, like people like Colonel Tom Parker when he took over Elvis's um, music and and image. Um, he the the thing that he did almost immediately was like clean up his act, like the gel was gone the outlandish outfits um turned into normal tuxes um he went to actually do military service and a lot of it was for show um to show his like patriotism and the fact that he was a good american citizen 
And even the music that he started singing, like in TV performances, like it was, it was actually gospel. Like the same person, Ed Sullivan, who before, you know, really begrudgingly allowed Elvis on his show, later on started calling him a fine, decent man. Like that was the 180 shift that you see in Elvis's image because management and, and the people behind the scenes wanted him to appeal to everyone, basically. And after all of that came Elvis's movies. And Tom Parker was using movies as pretty much the only way that you could interact with Elvis. If if you wanted to to listen to Elvis, to watch Elvis, everything was about money and Tom Parker was all about making profit. Either you had to buy a movie ticket or buy the albums that Elvis was was producing. And this was all because there were actually extremely few concerts that Elvis performed in. And because of that, when people were buying these albums, it was really about bringing Elvis back home with them. And the fact that people were experiencing Elvis in their own personal environments meant that they were creating these very special personal connections with Elvis. And of course, that drove fandom up. It drove the idea and the image of Elvis to blow up. And Elvis as a celebrity just kept kept growing and everything about him more special. Until it didn't, right? Like they declined massive um, movie opportunities. Uh, he started making pretty much box office flops. Um, his acting wasn't great either. And the movie studios knew that very well. Plus his loyal fan base of teen girls was getting older. And then, you know, we've, we all know it, right? The drugs kicked in and he started taking a lot of them. I remember watching this one Memphis Mafia documentary, Memphis Mafia being his entourage that he used to go out with. And one of them just went, Elvis did drugs because he liked them. Like he, there was no um, sense of uh, needing to release any frustration or anything. It was just very hedonistic. And because of that, his career really spiraled out of control. And you have these like five, six years of where he's untouchable and then he sort of vanishes um, in terms of that that celebrity status off the face of the earth. And I mean, they did try to revive his career, right? Like, especially with, with Vegas. Yeah, they put him in this show in Vegas, which I don't know, if we're thinking of Britney Spears today, it seems where stars go to die. And well, in this case, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... He did. Um, he literally killed over and died. And it was a sad end to his career. I mean, we had Elvis being this this sex god, this figure at the very center of the music industry. I mean, Elvis really became a relic of himself, right? He was his own tribute act. And, you know, he had like glaucoma, diabetes, uh, I think um, loads of other medical complications that came with the obesity and everything, right? Like he he was really on his last legs and then the unexpected death happens and everyone, I think, realized how big the loss of him was. But then when you think about it, for a long time, he just wasn't in the picture either. And he really tried, but it just wasn't working. But if you look at that, right, that's pretty much every massive celebrity especially in the music industry now like 
they all f follow this very similar life where when they're young, they have this massive uh, growth. They sustain it for a little while, then they go a bit crazy, and then it all all um, goes up in flames. And you know, you've got the greatest hits albums that come out, and that's that's what I personally find really fascinating about Elvis's life. Like it was larger than anything else before, but um, it really was a sad ending. And um, had he actually tried to maintain it with the good management, he could have gone a lot further. And now that we've talked about Elvis's life, we can start talking about the impact that Elvis had for American culture and for American music, especially. And it really all comes down to the fact that he was the first person that was successful in bridging white music with, with black music. And it all came down to the fact that it was a white man that could sing black music in a way that for at least white ears sounded authentic and that was something that white audiences had never experienced before and of course this was at, at best black influence from Elvis's early life making its way into the way that he performed music and into his personal style and at worst it was it was Elvis as a white man being able to appropriate black music and use his privilege as a white man to to expose white audiences to this and while the details of, of Elvis taking on black music are perhaps controversial and, and, and perhaps not okay. What it did mean is that for the first time, white music and black music were coming together. If we look at 1950, only three black rhythm and blues songs made it to the white pop charts. Only three in 1950. And after Elvis, suddenly these two, these two completely segregated musical categories came together. And... If you look at the context of this, you know, we're looking at America at a time when, you know, white people just had no, I mean, to say they had no appreciation for black music is putting it lightly, you know, they, they wouldn't even sit next to black people. And here comes Elvis merging these two categories together. And for example, the very first day that he performed Hound Dog on the Milton Berle show, that was right in the middle of Rosa Parks' boycott movement, where they wouldn't give up their seats for white people in buses anymore. And on the very same day he performed that song, federal courts ruled that bus segregation was actually unconstitutional. And so Elvis was right in the middle of all these changes and through music, through what he did for bridging these two categories together, an entire new trajectory was opened up for, for American music. We're talking the beginnings of rock and roll and, and everything that followed it. I think it's actually quite funny how everything almost fell into place for Elvis to do exactly that, right? Um, if you think about it, Memphis, as we mentioned, was a place in the South, which is part of the core of slavery, racism, struggle, oppression, everything under the sun. And there's no coincidence, right, that a lot of music and talent that has been era defining and culture defining stems from these places because from this struggle, from this oppression came expression and that expression came in the form of music and one of the people who basically launched elvis's career uh, his name was sam phillips and he was a record producer his 
um, company was Sun Records, and he himself was born in Alabama, again, part of this deep South. And one of the things was that he was very influenced by black culture himself. There's this one particular um, worker that people cite um, of his father's that had a major influence in his life and um, made him, I guess, realize the the culture that 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 black people and black music had. And one thing was that back in the day, the music industry was extremely sanitized, right? You had all these people who looked all prim and proper, uh, sang um, completely in tune with almost no emotion, just, you know, the typical showbiz smile on their face. And one thing that Sam Phillips wanted to do was sort of just get away from that and bring in rawness and passion that he saw from black music, uh, that he saw from this uh, deep South um, and, and bring it into the mainstream. That's why with Sun Records, he started recording with black artists and he was one of the very few, if not pretty much the only person at that time who was doing that. He was recording the likes of B.B. King and Ike Turner, people um, you know, who became massive in their own right. And he he started becoming known as, I guess, one of the good guys in the industry until he he basically found his um, you know white singer who could sing uh, in in a black style. But because of the fact that he was recording black artists, he really struggled, and um, you know people turned away from him. But on top of recording like black artists, he also wanted to do the same for lower class white people. And so Elvis comes into the picture and you know Sam Phillips knows that there's something there um, in terms of that ruggedness, that that truck driver vibe that he's going for. And he knows that something can work, but you hear about the stories of how they're they're going through so many songs like like covers upon covers to try and find the perfect song that fits Elvis's style. And during a break in uh, one of their recording sessions, Elvis starts singing uh, the song That's Alright by Arthur Crudup, which you heard in the intro of this podcast. Well, now that's alright, no mama. That's alright for you. That's alright, no mama. And it's funny, like, it, if you read the, the, the accounts, it's literally his head pops into the recording studio and he's like, wait, play that again. That sounded good. And that was the spark. That was it. And it's this song about how men and women kind of relate to one another. And back then, um, especially in the white community, there was this conservative distance. But this song, if you listen to the lyrics, it's a lot more of the relaxation of that. And one of the key lyrics in the chorus is, that's all right, mama, any way you do. There's this liberation um, of this distance between men and women and the sense of freedom. And what Elvis was pretty much able to do with that song was sing a bluesy song with uh, black origins and sing it just that little bit white. And... Phillips knew he was onto something. And then meanwhile, on the B-side, so the flip side of that record, he performed 
Blue Moon of Kentucky, which is completely the opposite to That's All Right. It's a uh, country song um, sang by a white uh, artist. And it's a, yeah, it's just a very white song in general. And I guess Elvis was able to make a very white song more bluesy. And this is where this appropriation comes in. And actually the moment that, um, you know, he, he performed That's All Right, Phillips went to his um, friend who was working at this one radio station. He was a DJ. Also, surname was Phillips. His name was Dewey Phillips. And he was also one of those guys that really wanted to try and, I guess, promote black music. And people didn't like that until he put this record on. People loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. He played it seven times in a row. And people were calling him up in the radio station being like, oh, who's this new black artist? And he said, no, this is Elvis Presley. He's white. And people went, oh, that's even better. And people just ate it up. They they loved it. And this is where that race element and, and like you said, that appropriation comes in. Elvis was pretty much able to use his privilege and use the talent um, that and, and the and the creativity that that black people brought to the music industry. But because he was white, he he was able to profit off of it at the start. And yeah, I mean, this race conversation is extremely complex because it all goes back to the fact that Elvis could be successful because America was racist and they would only take on black music if it was being performed by a white man. If we look at songs that had actually previously been released by by black artists, for example, Baby Let's Play House by Anthony Gunter, they received nowhere near the same success as Elvis, precisely because it was black men performing them. And this influence of black culture and black music didn't just stop it at music. Elvis was also very, very visibly taking on influences from black dance. And at this moment in time, like male dancers, firstly, were very prim and proper and everything about them was quite sanitized. Even, for example, working class men that became male dancers were trying to portray themselves as being middle class and that they wore tails and white gloves and the way they danced was all very ballroom-esque. Um, and especially black male dancers were doing the same thing. There was nothing black about them other than the fact that they were black. Everything else had been sanitized because that was the only thing that was acceptable for male dancers. And then Elvis came in and he's doing things that had never been really done for dancing on TV. He was doing things like freezing in the middle of songs or moving his, his feet and, and legs to a different tune than his upper body. And all of those elements of embracing the conflict and having different parts of your body follow different parts of the song, that all came from black music and black dance. And that's all we kind of been you know, reverse analyzed by, by different scholars and so on. But when we have Hound Dog, Elvis performed a song and it was one of the big moments of his career where he like properly went for it in terms of dance. And part of his dance routine involved a dance move called the full wing dance. And that's, that's a thing in black dance. And Elvis took it on. And it was this legacy of, of, of black music and black influence that was to be seen everywhere in Elvis, not just in his music. And even, I mean, that's just the kind of technical stuff, but even the aesthetic of, of being cool, that was everything that black music and black dance was about. And Elvis channeled that into, into his performances. 
So when you were mentioning about dance moves, I remember reading about how the media just almost had no idea how to describe it, um, what he was doing on stage, right? Like they used to compare him to female strippers. And I remember there was this one quotation of how they called him the masculine version of Marilyn Monroe's wiggle. Like they had never seen anything like that before from a man. And it created this shock and outrage, especially in those older generations that we mentioned before, who had these preconceived ideas, who saw music as this sanitized industry. And now you have this guy who gyrates his hips in a way that's never been seen before. And I remember seeing this one YouTube comment, and I think it sums it up pretty perfectly, where he goes, when you when you thrust your hips so hard that you change the course of American history, like it was that big a deal. And I think, you know, people just at that time were not ready for it, but he was there. And I think it all comes down to the fact that a man had never gone out on TV or or anywhere really and presented himself as something that was sexual. I mean, before it was only women that occupied this kind of position in TV or in music or in anything. And that came down to the fact that movies were being funded by men. They were being directed, written, played. I mean, what other verbs do you need? Like everything was, was done by men. So it was always about men's viewpoints and what men enjoyed. And of course, if we're looking back at that society, it was always women that were being seen as the, the recipients of all that, that maleness. And here we have for the first time Elvis breaking through that and actually performing not for male pleasure, but for female pleasure instead. And that was huge and just people couldn't get over that. And that's why he suddenly gets called a disturbing kind of idol by Life magazine. And people all across America, like from Santa Cruz in California to Jersey City, were, were banning him from performing and even issuing court orders against his hip gyrations because they just couldn't take the fact that a man was doing all of this. And in the process, he was he was really redefining what it meant to be a man in America. And this all came at the same time when, as we talked before, social roles were changing between men and women after the Second World War. And people were generally concerned about this. I mean, GQ had a very popular article called The American Masculinity Crisis. It was a thing. And Elvis came along and they were like, oh, like, damn, like, wow, like things are, are changing. And people were very anxious about that. Yeah, I mean, if if you see someone, um, you know, at, at least at that time, if you saw a man wearing pink and, and eyeliner and caring a little bit too much about his hair, people would look at you a bit differently and be like, well, what's wrong with you? Um, it just wasn't normal. Like we, we sort of have this preconceived idea that back in the day, you know, you had to be a man's man. And Elvis was really not that. And not just in the way that he perceived himself as a as a body, but even his personality. That was again going away from from what people's idea of, of manhood was back in the day. He was really there as a as a sensitive boy on stage. I mean, if you look at his songs, they're not about about assertive, confident men. They're about being vulnerable to love. I mean, his songs have titles like Heartbreak Hotel, Don't Be Cruel, Love Me Tender. And again, teddy bear, teddy bear, exactly. Big changes to how how men were meant to be portrayed uh, back in the day. And he was he was making himself vulnerable to women publicly 
for the first time in American culture. Yeah, and then if you actually read personal accounts of people who were very close to him, you realize that he was a very shy person. He was very insecure um, with who he was and in relationships. And he was also very intimate. Like, that's not what you expect from, you know, a man, a working class man in, in mid-century America. And that's what everyone said. He was just that that bit different. And he he wasn't his father's son. Like, that's something that um, his first love, Dixie Locke, actually called him. Like, that shows a lot about what was perceived as a masculine figure and how different Elvis was to that. And I think the biggest break on this question of how Elvis was changing masculinity was the fact that, you know, we, we remember him as a sex god. And as this whole conversation has like shown us, like we have very clear ideas of what that would have meant for someone in the 1950s. But that definitely didn't include things like wearing pink or wearing eyeliner or wearing wearing rhinestone encrusted jumpsuits that look like ABBA costumes uh, whilst he performed in Las Vegas. But all these things were things that Elvis did. And they were so the opposite of what our idea is, maybe even today, of, of what it means, to, like how, how to be a man today, and especially back then. And a lot of people have argued that this all came down to the fact that Elvis was able to do all these things because he inhabited this very special like man space and you know people never doubted that he was straight despite doing all these things and these were things that you know for anyone the kind of thing you would get bullied for to no end in school and here was Elvis you know showing all these things and nobody was questioning it and in a lot of ways people didn't question it because he positioned himself as a man that was drawing so much from black influence and he could get away with all these things of wearing eyeliner and wearing pink and so on because people had already formed an idea of what he was and all these essentially breaches in, in gender norms didn't become a thing because people didn't feel like they needed to question that. So when you look at Elvis and his life and the different turning points and you know gender race all of this you realize that there's this spectrum of elvises or as some people like to call it elvi about how people remember him and so depending on how you interacted with elvis at that time or even after you have this different connection and I think that that's that's quite a that's quite a big statement in terms of his legacy that he was different things to different people. I think that Elvis embodied so many different things throughout his career, and then also a lot of those things were quite ambiguous that people could project their own meaning onto him, and that change and ambiguity came in so many different layers. But I, I think the first one was just his trajectory as a star. And as you mentioned, he had very different stages. I mean, he started out as this teenage boy that was rugged and the object of affection. Basically for a rebel. Girls. A rebel, yeah. Then he morphed into 
a clean shaven, prim and proper, you know, TV ready guy. Somewhere after that, he fell into drugs, essentially unlimited sexual behavior and most things that we associate with with rock stardom. And then he changed again into becoming this ABBA-esque jumpsuit wearing guy in Vegas performing for middle-aged women, uh, struggling through addiction and, and finally dying. And that's just the first layer, you know, his life trajectory. And, you know, you can associate with the rebel boy or the prim and proper star or, you know, the out of control man, or then later the, you know, fallen star with the tribute act. And that's just the first layer. Yeah. And like you said, right, that's the, that's the first layer. But then when you dig deeper and then you see him from the second layer of also him being a male sex symbol, that also has different implications of how people remember him right like sex and sexuality is is not static and so what was a sex symbol back in the 50s 60s 70s is completely different to what it is now and so that brings another dimension that's that's a lot more dynamic in nature and yes so we have these important ways in how elvis changed a lot through the years and how our idea of him can be interpreted in our own personal ways and what's cool to think about as well is that his legacy as a sex symbol lives on and of course that was a very big part of his personality but i think the reason why it's a bit shocking for us to say for this podcast now to learn about the fact that actually he wasn't a man's man he was actually quite sensitive and a vulnerable lover and quite shy and had very different ideas about masculinity that the label sex symbol implies is because we read about him as a sex symbol we learn about him as that but that's probably because it was people at his time writing about him that determined what his label was and the writers the journalists the people producing things for the media they were all men and that's how they interpreted elvis and that's how they wrote about him or perhaps that's the elvis that they were comfortable talking about that maybe if they boxed him in into this sex symbol idea, then perhaps other ideas of masculinity weren't being damaged in their perceptions. And so I think it's quite testament to this whole idea of there being many different Elvi that there's so many impersonators today. I mean, the Elvis Impersonators Association or whatever they're called has like 150 members, like really wild ones as well. And we even have currently an impersonator of an impersonator like literally like someone who is like officially an Elvis impersonator and then the second person who impersonates that impersonator I mean <laughs> wow you know and yeah it all comes down to the fact that Elvis is complex and we can understand him however we want to want him to be yeah and I think back to again my nine ten year old self and why I wanted to listen to Elvis and it wasn't just because he was, you know, the king of rock and roll, and that's, of course, an important label, but there was also this sense of, uh, he was a bad boy, and I wanted to be cool. You they wanted to be a bad nine- boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, as your nine-year-old self wants to be, right? I wanted to be, like, this macho, masculine guy, or kid, rather. And then, you know, when you listen to the likes of 
teddy bear and don't be cruel um, and all shook up, you realize like there's a whole different story to what has been you know portrayed by again this 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 media that i guess to some extent was also threatened by him and it's really when you actually listen to his music and and read the stories and unpick everything like we have in this podcast that you understand the complexity of his superstardom. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments, or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.